You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Welcome all to this Christian Humanist Podcast. I'll be your host this week. My name is David Grubbs. I'm an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University. With me this week is Nathan Gilmore, soon to be ascending to full professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. How goes it, sir? The the apotheosis of Gilmore, or the uh, apo full <laughs> professorius of Gilmore, at any rate. I'm doing well. Uh, I'm glad to hear you're also doing well. The the apomagistricity. Anyway, I'm not going to try to coin classical words anymore. At this point, we're offending the uh, mythology readers and the uh, classicists, so we should stop. <laughs> Huzzah! <laughs> so, anyways, uh, not with us today is Michael Farmer, because he has much more things to do with his week. Yes, indeed. He is on vacation in the UK, and uh, I haven't seen a whole lot from him on social media, but I have seen many photographs from Victoria. Cool. I, I reckon that we'll have uh, we'll need to have some kind of a recap uh, once he gets back. I imagine we might. In the meanwhile, what's on the network, sir? All right, so uh, a few things going on. First of all, uh, believe it or not, the Christian Feminist Podcast is doing an episode on Ripley. And I, I knew I was going to do that joke. That That's one of those uh, memes. You know, don't say it, don't say it, don't say it. And then I said it. Uh, also, we've got a uh, Christian Humanist Profiles interview with Andrew Root. Uh, David, did you do that interview, or did Michael, or did someone else? Do we know? That was me. Um, I also interviewed uh, Jacob Ryoff, um, though that one is, uh, that one posted, well, what will be last week when this, when this episode drops, this week when we're recording, but because we skipped a week, because of me, dear listeners, um, it was my spring break, I wasn't, anyway, there was reasons. Um, Yeah, so I've done a couple of Profiles episodes back-to-back that just dropped, Uh, the first with uh, Jacob Ryoff, uh, fellow Anglo-Saxonist at another uh, another school who um, did a translation of a translation. Uh, he translated into modern English the Old English translation of uh, uh, the the Rule of Saint Benedict. Ah, oh, very good, very good. So, yeah, so that was that was a fun interview talking is all about the Benedictine reform in Anglo-Saxon England. Um, very very fun one. So the Andrew Root Profiles episode, I'm talking about the first uh, volume of a series that he's doing um, on ministry in a secular age. The title is Faith Formation in a Secular Age, uh, Responding to the Church's Obsession with Youthfulness. Now, you Um, had done another interview with Root on another uh, ministry-related book, had you not? 
Uh, I have not. Um, oh, I thought that somebody on the network had. If so, it was not me, sir. Oh, well, I'd, maybe I just imagined that. That's all right. <laughs> well, it, it, it was actually really interesting. He's um, really, it, it was fascinating. He's, um, it's another another one of those works that's kind of coming to grip with, with the implications of, of Charles, Charles Taylor's secular age. But in, in this case, he's looking at it particularly um, towards what does it mean um, that the church is obsessed with um, youthful authenticity and especially the problem of young people leaving the church. Um, so, so, yeah, it was really interesting. And in the Check meantime, I'm interviewing Nick Riggle about on being awesome. So I, <laughs> I, don't, <laughs> I don't know what that says. It's awesome. Of course. There you go. We've also got a uh, sectarian review that you listeners will already have in your phones on weird fiction, uh, which seems right up Danny Anderson's alley. So I'm looking forward to hearing that as well. And mine too. I'm on that one. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> Very cool. So lots of stuff going on. And uh, I know we talked about it last week, but if you still haven't listened to Before They Were Live's Jungle Book episode, well, I just did, and it's pretty great, too. Yeah, I enjoyed that one as well. It was uh, Michael Farmer on his Disney playground. It was pretty great. Very cool. So this week, we are looking at uh, a little a little work of Stoicism. Um, I'd, I'd been thinking about Marcus Aurelius a lot lately and, and I thought we should do meditations, but then I thought meditations is long. Who else can we do? <laughs> so we're going to do, um, Epictetus's Enchiridion. So who is this fellow, Nathan? Have you, have, have you heard of him? What's a stoic while we're at it? Sure. Sure. I have in fact heard of him. Uh, but first stoicism. Uh, this is a, a school of philosophy, and, and remember when we talk about schools of philosophy, uh, don't think so much as, don't think in terms of Democrats and Republicans, uh, or even in terms of deconstructionists and historicists, or, you know, Marxists and capitalists, uh, but instead think about, you know, different spiritual traditions, right? So this particular spiritual tradition begins in uh, the 4th century uh, BC, about a generation after Aristotle, so very late 4th century BC, uh, with a teacher named Zeno, uh, not the one who does the awesome thought experiments about arrows and Hercules running a race and things like that, <laughs> uh, but a different Zeno. Uh, and they get their name after the fact that they have their lessons not at a private uh, facility like the Academy of Plato the Lyceum of Aristotle, the Garden of the Epicureans, but instead uh, out in public on the portico uh, of a public building, the painted portico. Uh, and Stoic uh, comes from that Greek word for porch or portico. All right. Um, Stoa? Yeah, Stoa, precisely. Um, now, a couple centuries after Zeno, uh, the, the Stoic tradition has been around for several generations. And Epictetus... Uh, comes to it. Epictetus is born in Phrygia, modern day, uh, I want to say Turkey. Is that right, David? Uh, I believe that is correct. Yes. Yeah. I, I, if I'm ever in doubt I, I, about an ancient 
Roman place name. I just assume it's in modern day Turkey. Um, well, yeah, yeah. Ancient Asia Minor is is just sort of it's it's kind of a hopper in which I throw everything. Yeah, it's it's a kick in <laughs> place. But at any rate, he's born a slave. He is brought to Rome, uh, where he you know takes up with Stoic philosophers. He becomes uh, quite successful among them. Uh, and he himself does not write any philosophy down, so in that sense he is uh, not unlike uh, uh, Socrates. Uh, but his disciples write down uh, eight books of discourses from Epictetus. Uh, four of them remain extant. And then also they condense his teachings into this little book called the Enchiridion. Uh, so he is a, a teacher uh, you know, from the first century A.D., uh, so, you know, there's, there are other famous teachers from the first century AD, you might've heard of some, uh, who didn't write anything down, but his disciples did. So, uh, there's definitely at least that, uh, cosmetic, uh, connection to our own Christian tradition. Uh, David, what else do we know about, uh, the life of Epictetus? He's, he's often depicted with a crutch. Um, so one of the, one of the things that's uh, commonly said about his life, um, is that, uh, he, 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 he was, he was crippled. He was lame, um, in, in one leg. Um, I, I don't know how early that tradition is. I don't know how, how accurate it is. I wonder whether, um, I mean, maybe maybe it's really biographical. Maybe it's like uh, Homer's blindness, where it's the kind of thing that that people w- would say about um, a particular figure, even if it wasn't actually true. Um, but the but he certainly talks a lot about um, how do you uh, how do you deal with life when you are not uh, when you're not able to accomplish all that you want to accomplish. So that, that, that's, that, that seems maybe part of the picture that we can look at. Um, was he a slave when he was teaching or was that just a part of his life? Uh, honestly, I don't know for certain. Uh, you know, the, I guess what I assumed is that, you know, he was never, uh, emancipated, but he, he might've been, I mean, have you read anything one way or the other on that? I, I really don't know. Um, I, I, I just read that he was, I just read that he, he, he had been a slave and the, the verb in the source that I read indicated, I don't know, seemed to indicate to me that he wasn't necessarily always, I don't know, but I do know that a lot of education in the Roman empire was done by people who were not free. Right, right. And I, and I guess the reason that I assumed he was a slave is because so many times when people present uh, Stoicism, they talk about a tradition that included slaves like Epictetus, extraordinarily wealthy private citizens like Seneca, and an emperor, Marcus Aurelius. So, I mean, that because that trio always gets presented in that way, I just kind of assumed that he lived and died a slave. That makes sense. And, uh, again, quite, quite possible. Um, but that, but that's rooted in a uh, rhetorical flourish, not a biography. So, listeners, if you've got better information, by all means, send it our way. It's a good rhetorical flourish, though. Got a heck of a good rhetorical flourish, yeah. Well, 
you in uh, interaction before uh, before we recorded this episode, you had said that when um, when I, I I pitched reading uh, the Enchiridion, uh, that your first thought was Erasmus, um, and if someone had pitched that at me, my first thought would have been Augustine. Uh, the word just means handbook, which also makes me think about Boy Scouts. <laughs> so <laughs> what is an Enchiridion for? And do you see Epictetus doing, do we see him doing anything that's kind of analogous to Erasmus's handbook or Augustine's or, I don't know, the Boy Scouts? I, I will leave the Boy Scouts for you, but certainly uh, we see something that is analogous to what Erasmus and Augustine are doing. Uh, an Enchiridion is a handbook specifically for uh, living a good life in a difficult world. Uh, so to start with the, the most uh, modern of the three, the, the Enchiridion of the uh, militant Christian, I won't try to pronounce the Latin, of, of Erasmus, uh, it is a book of practices. It's, it's worship, it is the mortification of the desires, it is prayer, it is study. Uh, it is all of these things that wouldn't be necessary and will not be necessary in the age to come, uh, but ultimately are necessary if we are to live a good life here and now. Uh, Augustine's I haven't read for a good number of years, so uh, I'll also let you uh, comment on that. But to backtrack all the way to the Enchiridion of Epictetus, uh, this is, among other things, a book of spiritual exercises. So there aren't a whole lot of, you know, thesis reason, evidence, conclusion kind of arguments going on in this. Uh, instead, these are exercises. These are things to think about, ways to think about things, what to look for when you look at things, what to expect when you expect things. These are ways to uh, train yourself uh, if you are to live the life of a philosopher. Uh, and it's interesting, one thing that uh, came to mind that probably wouldn't have come to mind uh, you know, 20 years ago when I first took a look at this, is that it is very similar to the way that a lot of Christian writers uh, are approaching, you know, youth ministry in a sort of postmodern era. Uh, you know, I, I think of, you know, two figures who probably wouldn't appreciate being compared to each other, but that's kind of why it's fun to do it. Uh, James K.A. Smith and Trip Fuller. You know, when Jamie Smith writes about uh, faith development, he says that our biggest error is to focus on cognitive content. Uh, and what he suggests as an alternative is historic Christian worship and the practices of hearing scripture read, confessing sins, being sent forth, being gathered together, so on and so forth, to establish a sort of life rhythm. And on the other hand, Trip Fuller, uh, when he is teaching teenagers and college students and people who are uh, in a very pluralistic world, uh, his focus is not nearly as much as mine would be on, you know, the historical event uh, of Jesus of Nazareth. But instead, uh, what he focuses more upon when he does, you know, confirmation classes and whatnot. And I'm deriving this from stories Tripp himself has told on his podcast, so I'm not uh, inventing this. I don't think, Tripp, if I'm inventing it, write in and let me know. Um is he focuses on, you know, okay, during this week of confirmation, we will practice writing down all the people we need to forgive. During this week, we will write down all of the times when we have passed judgment on people using standards we wouldn't want to be judged by. During this week, we will give away our possessions. During this week, so on and so forth. 
so it really does become a, a spiritual practice, uh, you know, that is in some ways prior to what goes on cognitively. So that's the kind of thing that I'm thinking of here. And what's interesting to me is that, you know, I've been reading, uh, you know, Pierre Hadot, who I've mentioned a few times on the podcast. Uh, he suggests that, you know, the evidence from the period indicates that it wasn't just the Stoics and Epicureans doing this, but that it just happens that most of their extant texts are these spiritual exercises, but he offers uh, indications from Plato's dialogues as well as historical accounts of Aristotle's Lyceum that all of the philosophical schools were doing this kind of spiritual exercise. Uh, so, David, uh, I said that I would leave both Augustine and the Boy Scouts to you. Uh, what do you got on those fronts? <laughs> well, Augustine's in Caridian is it sounds like it's a good bit more because i haven't read erasmus's um augustine's in caridian sounds a good bit more self-consciously doctrinal than uh than erasmus uh, he does talk about christian practices but it, it's kind of a, a a little book of basic christianity um or uh, that is organized around the the words faith hope and love and so he begins with faith as in what do we believe in? And so he has sort of expositions of the basic uh, baptismal symbol um, that ends up in kind of some, some, some rabbit chasing on um, sort of major and minor theological points. Um, under, under hope, he's thinking especially of, of, of prayer. What, are, what is it that we look for? Uh, what is that? What is it that we look towards, uh, towards God for? What do we hope for? Um, and then uh, he ends with a, a shorter exposition of Christian love and the way that that should work out in in how we in how we behave. Um, faith is by far the biggest chunk. <laughs> um, I got you. I got you. Um, yeah, that's interesting. I think I think Erasmus is far more focused on shaping the soul than he is on those doctrinal points. Yeah. Though, um, my, my, my gut is that Augustine is much more of a, um, much more of a guy who's going to say, um, the thoughts that we have and the things that we believe our ideas are going to be shaping, um, what we do. I think he's, he's, he's one who's going to much more see the practical as rising out of our careful consideration of, of the the theoretical or the 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 idea oriented material material right right and i mean erasmus i mean seems to be a lot more shaped by and when i say this is going to be duh historical contingency but he seems a lot more shaped by uh thomas akempis's imitation of christ yeah um yeah. than augustine is by you know the enchiridion of epictetus and of the imitation of christ might actually remind me uh, a bit more of of, of Epictetus's Enchiridion than Augustine's Enchiridion. Um, it's it's also got that that kind of pithy um, sort of gnomic maxim oriented kind of structure. Right, right. Um, Boy Scouts. I just thought that was kind of fun. Uh, and Epictetus isn't teaching anybody how to take how to tie knot knots, um, but. One thing, uh, I, I grew up reading my dad's 1950s Boy Scout manual. Um, I always thought 
it was just super cool. And along with the how to tie knots, there was sort of very basic, um, uh, almost kind of ben, Benjamin Franklin-esque um, kind of pro- proverbial practical wisdom about um, things like honesty and punctuality and diligence and things of that nature. And uh, I don't know, I feel, like, I feel like there might be some of that here in Epictetus too. Um, a lot of a lot of his uh, advice boils down to mind your own business and do what and do the thing that it's your business to do, <laughs> which feels kind of Boy Scout as well. That makes some good sense. <laughs> well, he has really in this book he has really what's kind of a handful of basic ideas which then gets stated and applied in a variety of ways. And since, as you explained earlier, this is, um, this is not one long um, kind of complex structured work made by Epictetus himself, but more um, a collection of cool quotes from his, uh, from his students, uh, I think it's, it's appropriate for us to, to see it that way. Um, so what are his what are his basic ideas that that get elaborated throughout this? Right. Well, uh, influenced by Pierre Hadot and then also by Ludwig Wittgenstein, uh, I'm inclined to take these, you know, as ways to think about the world rather than true statements about the world. So, first of all, uh, to live the life of the philosopher, one should think that the world is broadly predictable but entirely unstoppable. Uh, and the way that that plays out is that we should expect uh, that sometimes good things will happen and sometimes bad things will happen. And we should expect our own ability to make the good things happen and keep the bad things from happening. Uh, we should regard that as largely negligible. So second of all, what that means is that you know when we think of the good life versus the bad life, the bad life is the one that is not truthful about the predictability and unstoppability of the world, but instead uh, becomes emotionally unsettled and you know out of control uh, in reaction to things that are simply reality. And the good life uh, is confined to coping with the world uh, in a way that simply accepts uh, you know that the world is both largely predictable and also utterly unstoppable. And therefore, the role of reason in the world is not to make things happen. Uh, Reasoning does not make things happen. Uh, But instead, reasoning allows us to dispose ourselves towards this unstoppable and broadly predictable world uh, in a way that does not expect unreasonably, uh, but instead copes reasonably. Uh, and those strike me, David, as, as kind of the three broad arcs of Epictetus's teachings here. Uh, would you uh, frame it about like that, or would you uh, revise that? I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, putting him, because I, I did recently reread Meditations as well, um, setting the later Stoic uh, alongside the smaller, the smaller work representing the, the earlier Stoic, um, I'm interested by how much more Marcus Aurelius wants to talk about, uh, I guess, cosmology or um, sort of the what might be the, the metaphysical underpinnings of this. For Epictetus, it's much more 
this is the way things are. You know, life is pain, highness. Anyone who says different is selling something. Um, instead of uh, so, so some of the maybe distinctive Stoic teaching, more distinctive Stoic teachings about the nature of the universe and our connection to it and what is our relationship to the divine and stuff like that um, is not is not as central here. Right, right. I mean, you know, if you learned about Stoicism as an abstraction in a history of philosophy course or something like that, you're going to find a lot more of the, the metaphysics and the nature of fate and whatnot in Marcus than you are in this Enchiridion. Now, I'll confess, I haven't really dipped into the discourses recently. Uh, does Epictetus get into that kind of thing in that longer work? I don't know. I haven't read all of the discourses. Um, I've seen segments of it in, you know, the sorts of places that you mention, um, you know, texts that are sort of, here's, here's the essence of Stoicism, the school. Um, but I haven't, I haven't sat down and read the whole thing uh, in order to be able to see, you know, whether this is, whether the stoicism that I learned from in my intro to philosophy book was, was always kind of a gestalt, <laughs> um, or not. I gotcha. I gotcha. Uh, I'm also interested. I, I also like the way, um, I like the way the handbook's ideas seem to be so much more practical in that, um, they could be, they could be things that you don't necessarily need to have the kind of cosmogony and metaphysic and whatnot that, that Marcus Aurelius lays out, you know, that, that, that classic presentation of stoicism and it, and it's, um, and it's notions about the nature of the world, uh, that you, you wouldn't necessarily need all of those things for Epictetus to be applicable. Right. I mean, in some ways, I mean, uh, you know, Epictetus here, this this very first century figure, uh, bears a lot of, uh, of common ground uh, with, you know, modern cognitive therapy. Uh, you know, it happens that the uh, faculty reading group at Emmanuel College this semester is reading through uh, Jonathan Haidt's book, The Coddling of the American Mind. And a lot of the things that he recommends for, you know, helping college students in 2018 develop uh, are are definitely uh, resonating with what Epictetus recommends, you know, 2,000 years before. That's really interesting. What, like, say more about that, because I have not, I have not, re I have read about that book, but I have not read it. Yeah, so I mean, you know, a lot of the things that, uh, you know, make him concerned about uh, campus culture in our moment is that people tend to catastrophize things, they tend to assign... Uh, nefarious and really demonic motives to people who disagree with them. Uh, people tend to see the world as made up of the good people, us, and the bad people, them. Uh, and he says that, you know, in uh, cognitive therapy, and actually there's a, there's a longer technical term for it, but that book is across the office from me and I can't reach it right now. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I am, you know, tethered by this cord to my computer listeners. Uh, but, you know, uh, he talks about those things as uh, the aims of therapy is to minimize those things, but the, the, the culture of campus activism as it has manifested itself over the last 10 years or so 
uh, encourages people to do precisely what therapy tries to keep them from doing. Uh, so in other words, you know, if someone speaks something that makes me uncomfortable, then that's an act of violence. If someone disagrees with me, it's not because, uh, you know, they are struggling with something themselves, but because they are bad people. Uh, if someone, uh, you know, I'm trying to think of some of the other ones that he gets at, but the broad picture is uh, that, you know, and it's very resonant with what Epictetus is doing here, uh, that we do better to to insist on being mindful of complexity rather than simplifying things in these ways. That's really interesting. Maybe we need to say more about that as we, as we keep going. Oh, I'm sure I will. I'm sure I will. Very cool. Well, there are some sayings in the Enchiridion, uh, as I was, you know, kind of reviewing through it. Uh, there's a lot of stuff in here that makes me think of bits of biblical wisdom, um, bits of Proverbs, maybe more of Ecclesiastes, uh, and maybe even some sayings of Jesus. Um, I have some echoes that I'd like to talk about. Uh, do you hear any echoes that you want to point out? Yeah, so, some of these echoes are um, kind of indirect echoes. So, I mean, they'll kind of bleed into other discussions we have. But one of them that is, uh, I actually wrote down before I looked at your list, so I'll, I'll steal one of your three. Uh, and then you cool. can have the other two, uh, is in, uh, section 46. Uh, and interestingly enough, my, uh, undergrad ancient philosophy professor actually, uh, used this as the, uh, the, uh, epigram to his syllabus. Uh, but he has this saying, and I'm going to read it directly here for sheep. Don't throw up the grass to show the shepherds how much they have eaten, but inwardly digesting their food, they outwardly produce wool and milk. Thus, therefore, do you likewise not show theorems to the unlearned, but the actions produced by them after they have been digested. And what I see there is, you know, uh, a very strong echo of, you know, uh, you will know a tree by its fruit and so on and so forth. You know, the idea that, um, and you see this in, you know, the Sermon on the Mount, to be sure. You also see it in the Epistle of James, uh, that it is in the good works that glorify the Father in heaven that you know the light of the soul is shown. So what's one that what's one that you were interested in? That's cool. I, I saw that one too, and and, and thought thought of uh, thought of some, thought ba basically I guess about the same thing. Um, this this one's uh, the one uh, the one after it. Um, when you have brought yourself to supply the necessities of your body at a small uh, when you brought yourself to supply the necessities of your body at a small price, don't pique yourself upon it, nor, if you drink water, be saying upon every occasion, I drink water. But first consider how much more sparing and patient of hardship the poor are than we. But if any at any time, uh, but if at any time you would inure yourself by exercise to labor and bearing hard trials, do it for your own sake and not for the world, don't grasp statues, but when you are violently thirsty, take a little cold water in your mouth and spurt it out and tell nobody. <laughs> and that, that also sounds like Sermon on the Mount, except it's the when you fast. Um, don't do it like the hypocrites who, you know, sort of walk around when they're fasting looking like death. Um, but anoint your head, wash your face. Um, 
fast in secret and the one who um, the one who sees in secret God will reward you openly so it's, right and what's great is that is actually the uh, gospel reading for the standard Ash Wednesday service that's really cool <laughs> and it, it's funny because I, I I listen to podcasts from some of my uh, clergy friends and uh, it, it, it's amusing that some of them you know have discovered that in their liturgy and then they tell people you know well wash your face after the service and I'm like no you missed the point the point is you start out Lent behind <laughs> <laughs> it's a ritual act of disobedience so that you don't think your poop don't stink nice nice um it does kind of take the wind out of everybody who wants to like pop up what they're giving up for Lent on Facebook. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Another one, David, that, uh, that, that stood out to me is section number 30 duties are universally measured by relations. Is anyone a father? If so, it is implied that the children should take care of him, submit to him and everything patiently listen to his reproaches, his correction, but he is a bad father. I'm going to assume this is a mistranslation. Are you naturally entitled then to a good father? No, only to a father. Is a brother unjust? Well, keep your own situation towards him. And it reminds me of those much maligned household codes in St. Paul, uh, where yeah. he says, you know, uh, you know, show respect to emperors. Uh, you know, uh, wives submit to your husbands. Husbands love your wife as the as Christ loved the church, right? Uh, And as people rightly point out, he is probably writing this not to, you know, Christian couples at a marriage retreat, uh, but to women who are married to men who are not converts. And, you know, the idea is, you know, yes, Christ has given you this liberty, and yes, you live in peace with them so that you might show them your good works rather than turn this into just another mystery religion insurrection kind of thing that's interesting uh the that is that's that's one that i i could see rubbing people today wrong especially that whole um you respect your father nobody said you get to have a good one um oh absolutely i mean there, there is a an uh unconditional sense of duty there yeah yeah which which feels very very roman oh best believe it best believe it (laughs) um well let's see what's the other one the other one that i had uh number number seven uh number seven uh consider when on a voyage your ship is anchored if you go on shore to get water you may along the way amuse yourself with picking up a shellfish or an onion I love the shellfish and onion pairing. <laughs> However, your thoughts and continual attention ought to be bent toward the ship, waiting for the captain to call on to call on board. You must then immediately leave all your things, otherwise you will be thrown into the ship bound neck and feet like a sheep, which apparently ships worked very differently back then. <laughs> so it is with your life. If, instead of an onion or a shellfish, you were given a wife or a child, that is fine. But if the captain calls, you must run to the ship, leaving them and regarding none of them. But if you are old, never go far from the ship, lest when you are called, you should be able to come in time. Yeah, that one makes me think of Jesus' parables, and it makes me think of the Aeneid. 
Yes. <laughs> Troy is burning. Get to <laughs> get to the boats. Um, but the uh, yeah, it makes me think of uh the like the parables of uh uh the lamp the lamp bearing maidens, right? Who uh, who are supposed to be waiting for the coming of the bridegroom, and some of them are ready, and some of them are not. Um, but yeah, that that whole idea that you know, while you are in life, um, the call's going to come to get back on the ship. You know, don't don't get too invested in what you're doing on the beach because you're going to have to get back on the ship. Um, that that idea was pretty pretty similar, I thought. And then in a kind of squirrely way, and then this one I think bleeds into the next one, but I'm going to do it anyway. Uh, I think that section 11 is reminiscent, or I guess resonates with, because uh, we shouldn't posit influence in either direction, uh, of the opening chapters, at least, of Job. Never say of anything, Epictetus writes, I have lost it, but I have returned it. Is your child dead? It is returned. Is your wife dead? She is returned. Is your estate taken away? Well, and is that not likewise returned? But he who took it away is a bad man. What difference is it to you who the giver assigns to take it back? While he gives it to you to possess, take care of it, but don't view it as your own, just as travelers view a hotel. So, I mean, there's some Job there. There's some Ecclesiastes there. Um, And again, you know, uh, I will say that that reflects Job chapters 1 and 2. When we get into chapter 3, uh, we get into some decidedly unstoical things. <laughs> Indeed. Well, as you have already suggested, um, there is there is much in Epictetus that is in tension with uh, with scripture, with Christian doctrine, with Christian morality. Um, in some cases, an outright contradiction. Um, what are some places that you see for that? Yeah, the big one that that jumped out at me when I was looking for this was section 16. Um, When you see anyone weeping in grief because his son has gone abroad or is dead or because he has suffered in his affairs, be careful that the appearance may not misdirect you. Instead, distinguish within your own mind and be prepared to say, it is not the accident uh, that distresses this person because it doesn't distress another person. It is the judgment which he makes about it. As far as words go, however, don't reduce yourself to his level and certainly do not moan with him. Do not moan inwardly <laughs> either. So, I mean, it, that is as direct a contradiction as I can find to, uh, you know, rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn, you know, weep with those who weep, depending on what translation you're working with. Uh, this is a counsel against sympathy. Mm. I, we were saying a little bit before, uh, a little bit before this episode about the way that Epictetus and Stoicism in general works its way out in the later sort of uh, uh, Christian handling and elaboration on and application of uh, classical philosophy. Um, is there a way that, I mean, how, how, how do you, how have we worked through that tension? Does that tension still kind of lie there? I mean, can we be Stoics and also weep with those who weep in some sense? Well, that that actually is what I'm going to discuss at the end of the episode, David. So I'll just tell listeners, keep listening. I am going to talk about that. Sweet deal. Okay. <laughs> All right. There's a there, there there there's a spoiler. Not a spoiler because he's not going to tell me. <laughs> nice. Well, one particular saying 
Um, oh, hold up. I've got another one. I'm sorry. Oh, I thought oh, you were oh yeah, one, yeah. Go, I've, go ahead. I've got one more because yeah. this one especially jumped out at me after my interview with uh, David Bentley Hart about his New Testament translation. Awesome, yeah. And it is uh, section 44. Uh, These reasonings are unconnected. I am richer than you, therefore I am better. I am more eloquent than you, therefore I am better. The connection is rather this. I am richer than you, therefore my property is greater than yours. I am more eloquent than you, therefore my style is better than yours. But you, after all, are neither property nor style. And what strikes me there is that he effectively renders uh, wealth morally neutral. Uh, whereas the, the epistle of James, to be sure, uh, I would say a lot of the sayings of Jesus are a lot more suspicious of wealth. Is it, it does, does he make it neutral? That's interesting. I mean, in 44, I mean, do you, how, how would you read it if not neutralizing it? See, I always thought uh, when it, when I read it, I'd heard it from the perspective of, um, just because you're rich doesn't mean that you're better than someone else. Or just because you're eloquent doesn't mean you're someone better than someone else. Just means you have a good style or you have a lot of property. Um, like I, I read it as kind of a, a condemnation to the rich for assuming that simply because they had material wealth that 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 was in some sense making them superior personally. Kind of. Oh, interesting. Okay, and see, I read it as more of a neutral thing that you know these things are. Uh, to use a term that often appears in those, uh, you know, intro to philosophy classes, adiaphora, things that do not matter. Ah, uh, okay. See, I, I was reading it in terms of uh, the handsome horse earlier. <laughs> okay, say a little bit more about that. Um, one of one of his one of his earliest uh, one of the first sayings. Let's see, where's the horse? I have to look for the horse. Um. <laughs> Do not be prideful with any excellence that is not your own. Number six. If a horse should be prideful and say, I am handsome, like a, in a, like a Mr. Ed voice, I guess, it would be supportable. But when you are prideful and say, I have a handsome horse, know that you are proud of what, in fact, is only the good of the horse. <laughs> which, is, which is just utterly lifted by Boethius in Consolation of Philosophy. Yeah. This this is his argument against wealth, power, fame, pretty much all of the goods that Boethius has spent his later life pursuing. Yeah. So what then is your own, only your reaction to the appearance of things? Thus, when you behave conformably to nature, in reaction to how things appear, you will be proud with reason, for you will take pride in some good of your own. Um, your behavior is is the thing that is yours. So if you behave well and you're proud of your good behavior, then then you're actually proud of something that's yours. But you can't be proud of that handsome horse. Its handsomeness in no way reflects on you. Um, I don't know. I, I think I'd read the, the wealth section as saying, you have more stuff. All it means is that you have more stuff. <laughs> okay, I gotcha, I gotcha. And I, I read it as far more neutralizing. But I, I, I see that reading. I see that reading. I, I don't know. I maybe maybe I'm an maybe I'm an an inward inward to that, or at least the way I read the New Testament doesn't make me, um, quite as David Bentley Hardish <laughs> about. Yeah, I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. Well, um, 
yeah the 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 outright does contradiction that, that that you saw is the one that stuck out to me most don't weep with those who weep um but but certainly there there are others in here that don't that don't seem uh that don't seem quite to fit um the whole when you uh when you uh kiss your wife or child you know say i kiss things that are human <laughs> um you know, uh, that's, that's weird. Indeed. Indeed. But, but let's get on to that, that section 29. Cause I know, I know you want to talk about section 29. Okay. So 29, which you just mentioned, uh, that, that one makes me think of our students a lot. So could you please read 29 and then tell me what you think of that council? Sure, sure. I'm I'm going to summarize it rather than reading it. Sure. Uh, you know, this is, you know, in my reading, largely a paraphrase of the Platonic uh, critique of democracy, namely that there are certain people that Plato would say have democratic souls that have <laughs> these great ambitions, uh, but do not devote their entire lives to it because then any given moment might have a different desire. And of course, democracy is the equality of desires. And so I will read one little passage, you know, otherwise, uh, take notice. He's talking to these democratic souls. You will behave like children who sometimes play like wrestlers, sometimes gladiators, sometimes blow a trumpet, sometimes act a tragedy when they have seen and admired these shows. Thus, you too will be at one time a wrestler, at another a gladiator, now a philosopher, then an orator. But with your whole soul, nothing at all. Uh, and of course, his big uh, criticism of that is that these very worthy uh, human pursuits uh, require precisely dedication. Uh, and I think that there are students who go that direction. I'm going to push back just a little bit, though, and I'm going to reach, um, you know, perhaps uncharacteristically for C.S. Lewis to push back uh, and note that my students, at least as I think of my students in the aggregate, certainly there are exceptions to this. Uh, it's not that they have a, a surplus of ambition and a, a deficiency of discipline, but really it is that they have a deficiency of ambition in the first place. Uh, so, I mean, you know, what I hear from my students far more than I'm going to do this great thing, that great thing, this great thing, that great thing is uh, what major is the easiest? What courses yeah. in the core are the easiest? So, you know, I'm reminded of that passage. I think it's from the abolition of man, but it might be from our English syllabus. I, I didn't prep this sufficiently, listeners. I, I, I do apologize. Uh, where he says that the, the main work of the teacher in our age is not clearing jungles, but watering deserts. Uh, you know, it's not to, you know, disabuse them of, uh, you know, grand flights of fancy, but to give them space actually to imagine anything at all. But, but David, I mean, that, that might be just my Emmanuel College students. I mean, do you, uh, do you have a whole lot of democratic souls there in Houston? It makes me think of, uh, it makes me think of, well, just, just many students who I've known who chose a career based on, or, or chose a major based on uh, perhaps the prestige or the earning power or the glamour of a the profession that lies at the end of that major but then when they get into it it's hard and 
then they change to something else. Uh, it also uh, the kind of the end of twenty nine. He says, uh, b- before you're picking out the thing that you that you need to do, consider first what the matter is and what your own nature is able to bear. If you would be a wrestler, consider your shoulders, <laughs> your back, your thighs. For different persons are made for different things. Uh, basically, before you choose your ambition, look at yourself and say, what are what are my capacities? Um, you might want the paycheck of a brain surgeon, but do you have the 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 skill, the aptitude, the discipline with the sorts of in the sorts of areas that a brain surgeon is going to need to? study in order to get to that point um you know do you have the shoulders of a wrestler <laughs> right right that makes some sense that makes some sense yeah it it feels like it's 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 the balance of the two things like are your ambitions suited to your skills to or not your skills are your are suited to your capacities um but also are your ambitions accompanied with the discipline um accompanied with an acceptance of the hard work that's going to go along with achieving them or you know maybe this is another place where i hear the gospel echo um have you counted the cost before you started building the tower right right yeah that makes some sense in uh numbers 24 and 25 well, they they reminded me of something. Let's see. Let's see if they what they made you think of. <laughs> well, this week they reminded me of Tucker Carlson. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and listeners, if you're listening to this after you know the spring of 2019, uh, in March of 2019, it was uh, exposed by Media Matters for America that Tucker Carlson had a regular bit on a shock jock show called Bubba the Love Sponge. Uh, in which he said some truly horrific things, racist things, pederastic things, uh, you know. And again, this is Howard Stern shock jock kind of thing in the 90s. That's what people did for entertainment. Um, I know, I make it sound like it's ancient Rome, which it kind of <laughs> was. Uh, but, <laughs> uh, you know. Shock jocks of ancient Rome. That's, that's a book title right there. Oh, man. Uh, but at any rate, uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of very smart, generally moral people, uh, including David French, who normally I, I have a great deal of respect for and agree with, uh, are are basically trying to minimize this and saying that, you know, the real show here is not the fact that Tucker Carlson said these hideous things, but that, you know, the left with a capital T and a capital L is out to get him. And I it made me think of these because, you know, one of the things that he says in these passages is, uh, you know, should you hold power in public? And the answer is only what you can hold with honor. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, reminds me of Boethius to be sure, but it also reminds me that uh, if you decide even for a moment that you are willing to sacrifice honor, uh, and I'm just going to stick with that very Roman word because it works here. If you're going to trade that honor for public influence, then ultimately your public influence isn't going to be worth anything. Uh, I'm also reminded of the uh, the Boethius poem from Consolation of Philosophy again. Uh, and listeners, I mean, you know that I, I see Boethius in everything, but it really is in here. 
Um, but you know, in one of the poems, there's an aphorism and I've, I've lent my copy to a friend and I couldn't get it back before we recorded. But in one of the poems I've taught enough times to remember, there's an aphorism that says that hope and fear are the weapons of tyrants. Uh, and I think that's what, you know, sections 24 and 25 reflect because, uh, if a tyrant can make you think that, you know, you can benefit by giving up your honor and you give up your honor, the tyrant has won. If a tyrant can make you fear that you will lose something that is of ultimate importance and therefore you do something dishonorable, then the tyrant has won. Uh, so yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I don't often think of Boethius, Tucker Carlson, and Epictetus all in the same three-minute span, but there you go. What, what, what does this make you think of, David? <laughs> um, I, I like the... Um... I like the for, first the emphasis uh, at the beginning that there's this um, sort of implied dialogue with someone um, who feels like an outsider. Um, they feel like they're an outsider to to power. They're an outsider to the culture, um, and and unless they pursue, in this case. Um, in this case, wealth, it seems to be, um, without, uh, without wealth and political honors, then they're just going to be completely helpless. Um, my, my friends will be unassisted is this, is this person. Basically, if I don't have wealth and power, my friends will be unassisted. What do you mean by unassisted? They will not have power. They will not have money from you, nor will you make them Roman citizens. Who told you then that these are among the things in our own control and not the affair of others? And who can give to another the things which he has not himself? Well, but to get them, we may, we, that too, we may have a share. Um, uh, in other words, pe- people who, who, f- who feel like they're outsiders complaining about how they cannot help them, they cannot help themselves and they can't help others unless they make this compromise. Um, Unless we make the compromise, unless we dance with the devil, unless we play the game as it's played, we'll just be helpless. Um, and, and Epictetus keeps saying, um, there are more people in a society than politicians. <laughs> and if you, and if you can, if you can play the power game and still have your honor, cool, go for it. But it sounds like you are trying to justify a compromise for your honor, and you're not recognizing that there are other people in a society that also do their jobs than just politicians. So if you can't be in power and keep your honor, go do something else that can keep your honor. Go make shoes. <laughs> right, right. And, and to his credit, I've, I found an interesting echo here with uh, Rod Dreher's uh, Benedict option, right? Because that is explicitly a call away from the compromises of dealing with the GOP. And he actually does say in a number of places in that book, uh, Christians should be ready for the possibility that they're not going to be welcome in the prestigious professions anymore. And our answer to that should not be to compromise, but to learn how to to do plumbing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's straight up Epictetus. And then 25, uh, I, I really love 25 of uh, why are you so offended that you didn't get invited to a banquet? Um, 
when the only people who got invited to the banquet were basically the ones who brown-nosed with the person in power. And you didn't brown-nose. So um, you get your reward. Your reward is not having been a brown-noser. <laughs> um, so for, for those who kind of see themselves as political outsiders who kept their honor but don't have power, um, maybe you don't get invited to the, you know, maybe you don't get invited to the party. Okay. But you get to be the one who didn't do what was necessary to get invited to the party. And that's, that's important. I like it. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's definitely worth thinking on. Well, if we follow the Enchiridion, and this is one of my, one of my concerns. If we follow Epictetus's Enchiridion, or I guess any Stoic, will we still have the ability to oppose cruelty or injustice in the world? I think that we will, and here's why I think that: because of precisely section, uh, you know, twenty-four that we just talked about. I think that if we find ourselves with the capacity. Uh, as things have turned out, to exert a counterforce uh, to cruelty and injustice, then we probably should exert that counterforce. Now, where Epictetus is going to differ from a lot of uh, so-called real politique thinkers is that he's going to say that the limit to that resistance to cruelty and injustice is going to be wherever honor ends. So in other words, if you have to trade in doing the right thing for uh, consequences that you anticipate, you are ultimately playing a sucker's game because you do not know the consequences, but you know what is honorable and dishonorable. Uh, so I think that, you know, ultimately, there's some resonance there, honestly, uh, you know, between what Epictetus is doing here uh, and, you know, the, the Anabaptist and, you know, the Anabaptist tradition the writings of Stanley Hauerwas and other uh, writers who have been influenced by them. Uh, the idea is that uh, our confrontations with the powers of this world should always be active, but they should never be violent in the case of Stan Hauerwas. So we should always be ready to be martyrs, to bear witness. Uh, but when we start to think that it is ours to control fate in Epictetus's vocabulary, or to be Caesar in Stan Hauerwas's vocabulary, uh, then at that point we have lost, uh, you know, something that is ultimately more central to what we are about in the world than we would have gained if we, in fact, you know, made the deal and actually came out ahead in the deal. Or, I mean, to perhaps misappropriate, but certainly to misquote, uh, you know, what good does it do to gain the world if a man loses his own soul? That makes a lot of sense. Though, one of the things that... One of the things that makes me wonder... I, I feel like you can start with Epictetus in the way that you did and move in those directions. But it feels as if you're going to have to augment him with something else. Oh, I'm certainly augmenting him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because... If all you have is this, it doesn't seem as if because persons are impermanent, because you will die and everything you everything and everyone you love will die and pass, 
um, because of that one great fact, it makes everything, including your suffering, um, and and the evil of the person who inflicts it, if it is a if it is a suffering inflicted by someone else, also an impermanent vanity that isn't important and ultimately real, and so that's why you don't weep when your child dies because your child is also one of these impermanent ephemeral things in a, in a kind of ultimate sense. Um, and it, it seems to me that some of these kind of similar moves that Christianity makes when it sources things like Epictetus gets modified by the idea that, um, that humans are in some sense forever. Um, and yeah. therefore, mm-hmm. and therefore, are among those things that ultimately matter. But for Epictetus, it doesn't seem as if, as if they do. What really matters right, right. is your personal alignment with honor and conformability to nature. Um, but you yourself, you yourself, will just be another one of these things that passes. Yeah, that makes some sense. I mean, you know, I I realize now that you say that, that I kind of made the shift from the Latin consolation of philosophy to the old English consolation of philosophy there. (laughs) Well, I mean, even even the consolation of philosophy sees a value in human souls, right? Yeah, true enough. It's not necessarily there in Epictetus and certainly not there in Marcus Aurelius. Um, I was talking talking to students about meditations um, the other day and they pointed out something which I kind of glossed over in my own reading, which is all the times that he mentions these, these, these dead emperors to remind himself that he too, as an emperor will die. Right. Uh, is then is that the emperors that he names, uh, were those, um, at least some of them were those that were reckoned by the Senate uh, as, having been elevated into deity and received divine honors after their deaths. Oh, that's interesting. And so, my so, students, it's, so it's almost an atheist text. Right. And so my students said, does he not believe that Augustus was deified? That Julius Caesar was actually carried in the bosom of Venus up to Olympus and so forth. Right. Right. And I looked at the text and I looked at them and it's like, Gosh, it looks as if he doesn't he doesn't actually believe in the Roman civil religion. <laughs> Which puts him in a really weird space for persecuting Christians. But 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 yeah, it's like it, you know, if he if he's really so committed to, you know, I will die and I will be forgotten and I will be nothing. Um what about the deification of emperors? He doesn't seem to he doesn't seem to assert that. But that's Marcus. That's not Epictetus. Right, right. Well, I focused on things that I thought were neat. Um, certainly not all that we all the all the rabbits we could have chased, but you know maybe maybe start a few before the end. Um, what else in Epictetus do you find worth our attention? And you've already kind of teased it. Right. So I'll give two little nuggets before I get to the big question. Uh, one of them is you know I was just amused at you know section eight. Uh, it's a short one, so I'll read it. Don't demand that things happen as you wish, but wish that they happen as they do happen, and you will go on well. And my first uh, thought there was, uh, 
you know, this guy needs to chat with Wittgenstein. Uh, the logic <laughs> of wishing is precisely that things are not as you wish them to be. And if they are already as you wish them to be, then it's not really a wish. But that's a side thing. Another thing is that, you know, in section 50, deep into the uh, Enchiridion, uh, you get something that is, you know, almost proto-Kantian. Uh, you know, the idea that whatever uh, moral rules that you've deliberately proposed to yourself abide the abide by them as if they were laws uh and again you know this is not identical to the you know let that maxim uh for you be that which you would hold universal for all rational beings uh but it's not far away from it uh those are a couple you know moments of curiosity really the big question david that i came away with this uh wrestling with is that in my own seminary training uh, we were taught to run far away from Stoicism, especially on pastoral matters. Uh, you know, never tell a person they're in a better place. Uh, never tell a person this is all part of God's plan. Never tell a person it's not that important that this disaster has befallen you. And, you know, the text that they would go to would be the Psalms, uh, certain passages in the Synoptics, to be sure, Jesus weeping in John chapter 11, uh, and the entire apocalyptic tradition, really, that treats the world as something of utter gravity, so much so that, you know, the symbolic and the narrative and the, you know, uh, the literary discourse of the Bible so often drifts into this, this genre in which God is so offended by things that happen in the world that God directly sets things right. Uh, you know, that's the heart of apocalyptic is that things will not always be as they are, but that you can pray, may your will be done on earth as it is to, in heaven, precisely because God intends to do that. And in my own uh, pastoral work, you know, uh, I, I haven't preached many funerals, but when I have, I've tended to go that direction that, you know, uh, this is a genuine crime against us that our friend has died and, you know, our prayers to God is not to help us to, uh, you know, stop mourning, but rather for God to bring this person back. And as we proclaim the resurrection, we do so with this person in particular in mind, and we should do that. Then I read patristic writers, and I'll confess that this is a point of real conflict with me. I'm not, I'm not hiding the right answer in my pocket right now. But a lot of early Christian writers, you know, sound a lot more like Epictetus. The fact that, you know, yeah. our passion should yeah. not carry us away, that we should, you know, they, they quote St. Paul, you know, we should not mourn like those with no hope. Now, for me, that means that, you know, the mourning is not the final chapter, but it is a chapter. For them, it seems to be that uh, mourning itself is influenced by the fact that it is, you know, part of a narrative rather than the end of a narrative. So, I mean, you know, when I, when I read Epictetus, when I read other Stoics, one of the things that, that troubles me still, and I'm still wrestling with it, is the extent to which I am doing pastoral work, and I am doing Christian thinking more generally, and I'm dealing with my students at a Christian college, to be honest, uh, in a way that, you know, a lot of the patristic writers would find very alien. And I wonder, you know, I mean, of course, because I, I like to be right, uh, my first, you know, instinct is to say, well, they've just been drinking too deeply from the Stoic well. I've got the Psalms. Uh, <laughs> but honestly, I mean, you know, if I, if I actually, 
you know, pause long enough to confess some sins, which I hear Christians should do. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm right about that. So, uh, you know, you can either, uh, you know, give me the right answer, David, or you can tell me if there's anything else that you want to point listeners to. Well, I was talking, I was actually talking to, uh, about something like this um, recently with a student. Um, uh, hi, Brian. Um, with a student who's uh who is a christian um uh, but his parents are buddhist and we were talking about the idea of attachment because he had you know we we were talking about marcus aurelius and uh he had not read epictetus and so i was saying some was kind of talking talking a bit about this reading and we were talking about the idea of attachment and a lot of it uh came down to like there were there were things that made us nod our heads in you know in 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 marcus because that was the common text we had or for me with 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 epictetus but then there were places where i i I don't nod my head um and a lot of it and came down to that the problem with the problem with attachment for christians is not attachment full stop it's attachment to what for what reasons and the texts um you know the text that we that that the student and i were we were talking about was uh, lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven um or um, set your mind on things uh, which are above with Christ. Um, the just the idea that some things are permanent and some things aren't. And what have you what have you set your loves on? Um, I think the the ultimate the if if I was trying to make sense of where these things fit. Um, I, I've certainly read church fathers who sound way too stoic to me too. Um, they seem to be take the "don't weep" like the pagans without hope as just "don't weep." <laughs> right, right. Um, but you know, I would ask, what what things will be treasures in heaven for me? You know, what 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 things, what realities now are part of the 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 forever order of the world that i looked to god to restore and maintain um i'll love those things i'll mourn when they are harmed or lost but also look to god to be the one who who maintains and restores and resurrects but there's an awful lot of stuff that's just the turning of the wheel and i've just lateraled into boethius um, well, I, that's that's natural when you read Epictetus. <laughs> so you know, so th- there is a lot of stuff that moth and rust corrupt. There's a lot of stuff that's, um, you know, you need you need to read uh, someone, uh, someone like Lady Philosophy or Marcus Aurelius, reminding you how small the Earth is within the whole universe, and what a small part Rome is, and what a tiny you know, sliver of history the Roman Empire occupies so that to say I will be glorious throughout Rome is to actually say a very, very small thing. And I think that's something that Christians 
you know that that's a bit of wisdom Christians can can embrace. I, I I don't know I don't know if I'm being helpful, but a lot of it comes down to um, what are the forever things, and I think Stoics just have different forever things than us. And if we take Stoic wisdom undiluted, so to speak, um, we are in danger of not valuing highly enough with our affections things that are really forever important things right right and again i i still do think and i should make this clear to listeners that i i that the apocalyptic character of so much of the new testament is very important and i think that it should be a datum when we do our theology uh but i also want to take seriously that there are patristic writers you know who know the text of the bible at least as well as i do uh, who interpret it very differently. So, uh, you know, I, I, I still, if I, you know, God forbid, have to preach a funeral soon, it's going to sound more apocalyptic than it's going to sound stoic. But I'm not sure if I'm right about that. Yeah. I Well, I would probably sound more stoic, but, you know, I'm the Calvinist in the conversation. <laughs> true enough true enough well dear listeners uh i think that's all the epic we have time for today uh what are we doing next week do we know i believe we are doing uh michael farmer's episode on walking in the city this is one that we promised to you a couple weeks ago that's uh, right it, yep. it didn't come to pass uh but fortunately the cities are still there we can still walk in them and that's <laughs> what we're going to do next week so before the cities burn, let us go walk through them in meditative fashion amongst crowds. Very cool. All right, dear listeners, uh, go read. Uh, we will link to uh, the the Enchiridion of Epictetus uh, in the show notes on the blog when those post uh, at uh, christianhumanist.org. Um, so, you know, check it out. Let us let us let us know what you think. Uh, if you have comments on that or comments on uh, this episode and uh, our meditations thereon, uh, you can post them on the uh, comments on the blog. You can post them on Facebook. You can like us on Facebook. We appreciate that. Or you can email us uh, at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, the Christian Humanist Podcast is a show on the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And I'm David Grubbs. On behalf of the present Nathan Gilmore and the absent Michael Farmer, telling you to let your sin be strong and let your faith be stronger. <laughs>